Sean. Hey, Radcast is on. And welcome to the show, Mr. Jim Zumbo. Gentlemen, I am pleased to be here, and I use that term loosely when I say gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) Al Winder. Just want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to hang out with us on a podcast for a little bit. Hey, I'm looking forward to it. There's nothing makes me happier than a cold in Minnesota. If I can't be out fishing, I should be talking about fishing. (laughs) Hailing from Wisconsin, Jenna Waller. Thank you so much for having me. It's Redcast. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. Powered by Bo Spider. Brought to you by PK Lures and High Mountain Seasonings. And now, here's your hosts, Patrick Edwards and David Merrill. Hello, everybody out there in Radio Land. It's good to be back with you. I'm David Merrill. I'm here in the studio, and today we're going to be interviewing me. I'm actually super excited to go over this topic. Patrick is going to have to be excused from this one. He's been on the road and... He will be hopefully back for the next one. We've got a couple guests we're lining up, so it'll be pretty cool fall. So be following along on that. Definitely, if you haven't been out fishing, hunting, enjoying this little bit of fall weather that we've had before the the hard water sets in, probably like today's your last chance. So go out, enjoy it. We're getting into fall season. I've definitely been filling freezers, having fun, and getting winter projects or fall projects squared away. Before we get too far into it, I just want to give a huge shout out to our sponsors, PK Lures, High Mountain Seasoning, and Bow Spider. Couldn't be here in the studio doing this without them. And we really like to partner with companies, Patrick and I, that we believe in for sure. Obviously, I'm going to believe in Bow Spider, but at the same point in time when I'm going fishing, I'm using PKs. We've talked about their new products. I've been out, used their products. Definitely not a huge promotion minute. Go buy a couple of their lures and try them in your favorite fishing spot. And I think you'll be impressed at the places they catch fish and the type of fish. And once you catch those fish or you go out and harvest some game, you're going to need to season that throw some high mountain seasoning on there for sure. We've done a lot of episodes and talked about it quite a bit. I'm a huge fan of snack sticks, but you can just get their burger seasoning and put it on regular old hamburgers. If you weren't a good hunter and you happen to have to go buy some beef, it works on cow too. They've got some tremendous fish brine. We've used it on smoked salmon and then they've got some great fish rubs and there's hundreds of products. So definitely check them out. We have promo codes for PK, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasoning. So you can sample it and see what the rave is all about. All right, we'll get right into it. Today we're going to go over adventure out-of-state hunting. I know we've talked a little bit about backpack hunts, and that's the Western theme, but I'm going to go a little broader today and just get into adventure hunts. And we'll run the gamut across a whole bunch of different topics, but I really just want to hit some high points of things that I've found out firsthand on going on some of these once in a lifetime or bucket list quote unquote trips. And there's a huge difference in a hunt that takes place states, miles, airplanes, continents away from your home base. When you're doing a hunt, whether it's your back 40 acres, whether it's, you know, neighboring county, maybe it's just the neighboring state and you've done it for years. When you get in those hunts that are routine and expected, that's not what we're covering today. You guys know how to do that. You you understand that. What we're going to cover is, you know, planning and executing one of these bigger level hunts. And when we really get down to brass tacks, these big level hunts, let's take Kodiak Mountain Goat, for example, you've got a lot of expense, a lot of energy, a lot of time wrapped up in that trip. That's not a trip that anybody can just take every year willy-nilly. You don't just two weeks before that trip say, you know what, I think I'm going to go up there and go for a week. That's just not the way it works. Using that example, 
the the first thing that you really need to start doing in planning one of these is planning and you've got to plan if not months years in advance. And why I say that is you've got to know the license, the regulation, you've got to get the tag. And a lot of places, a lot of states, a lot of countries, you have to be awarded the tag. You can't just show up that day and go to the gas station, buy a tag and go hunt. Now, there are some states, I'm not going to throw them all under the bus, but if you if you get out there and start looking out west, back east, I'll come up with two or three on the top of my head, Arizona, Oregon, and Missouri you can drive into that state, drive up to the gas station, say, hey, I want a, a deer tag, buy a deer tag and go hunting. Now, a couple of Missouri for one, 1% public land. So unless you have prearranged access, it's going to be very difficult to drive around during season, knock on doors and get permission. So step one in any bucket list style hunting adventure is understanding kind of the regulations and licensing and just set down, hey, I want to go here. Now, this leads me right into my next big topic is managing expectations, right? Of course, we all want to go and harvest that big trophy and we want to get it done. However, as a guide, when I used to have clients that their expectation when they showed up was to shoot a world record elk, they always went home disappointed. I could have a next another client the next week who had been saving for years to come and just wanted to go on a guided hunt. And you know what? He went home with a nice representative trophy elk for that area, tickled, just over the moon. But I've had clients that didn't become successful and the difference is attitude. And that comes down to your expectations. Now, when I've gone on doll sheep hunts or Cape Buffalo trips, soon I'm going to be planning a Asian water buffalo trip. I really want to come home with one, but as you guys can watch on YouTube, I wasn't able to harvest a goat archery season or with my archery equipment and we filmed it. And I'm not saying that you can't do it or it can't be done. It's definitely done. It happens every year. At some point in time, I will go back and try again with a bow, but you're dramatically limiting your capabilities when you switch from bow to rifle or rifle to bow. In my experience, it, it's really one or the other. Taking both weapons, you're always going to resort back to the rifle to fill your tag. You can watch that day 16 of a 17-day hunt, and we were flying out on day 17, so day 16 of a 16-day hunt. I opted to take a 200-yard rifle shot after busting the sheep or the mountain goats twice. And that was very frustrating to spend that amount of time, energy, getting there getting set up, getting in position and just the terrain and the animals and the wind. I, I wasn't comfortable making the shot that was presented. And that leads me into kind of one of the big things that needs to happen before you go on one of these hunts. And that is preparation. And there's all sorts of preparation that you need to have coming down to it. Some of the preparation you need to think about is you need to be proficient with whatever weapon you're going to use. If that's a hog hunt in Texas and it's going to be a helicopter hunt and you've been dreaming about it forever, maybe practicing a little bit with the weapons at the angles you're going to be shooting. Out of a helicopter, shooting shooting at hogs is way different than archery elk over water is way different than mule deer in open spot and stock country is way different than mountain goats or sheep in Alaska and 
knowing what kind of yardage you're going to be expected to shoot and sticking within that yardage is really important to be successful. Lots of people will handicap themselves with maybe the wrong practice. If you're only shooting 20 yards in your bow indoors all year, and then you head out west and say, I've got a 60 yard pin, I should be able to shoot 60. I would highly recommend you rethink that. I would say, go to a couple tack events, shoot your bow at 110, 120, 130, and figure out where your comfort zone is in that 40, 30, 50 yard range. Because people who are proficient at 40 to 50 yards harvest a lot of animals. People who shoot 20 yards and then they're presented with a 40 yard shot aren't as successful. As you're thinking about this adventure hunt, checking the expectations, making sure that you're managing some of those. So we covered, you need to be proficient with your weapon. You need to have some legal knowledge and be proficient with what licenses, what season. We've talked to the uh, game wardens and one of the biggest citations they give out is wrong unit, wrong area, wrong days, right? So people will get a tag and season might be, they might have a, a tag that's valid for north and south of given highway, but south of the highway may close at a different time or might be not open for a whole different period. So don't assume that, oh, you got a tag and you're, you know, you're legal. So that said, this comes down to a big one. For me, it's much more rewarding and gratifying to do an out-of-state adventure hunt as DIY as possible. So you watch the Cape Buffalo hunt that I did in South Africa. I told the the PH when I booked it, I wasn't going to go sit in a cement blind. I wasn't going to sit over water. And I, I wanted to spot and stock and run a Cape Buffalo down and shoot him with a bow. And it is exponentially harder than I ever expected. It comes down to those animals see, smell, and hear and are hunted a lot. And they don't tolerate human presence. And they would, they'd spook and run 200 yards into some thick, nasty cover that you just it was impossible to stalk in quietly and get an opportunity. And when we did get in that close, they'd already know we were there. So they would circle the wagons and face us. And that's less than desirable for a big game archery kill. So that's another thing to manage those expectations and prepare. Being as prepared as you can is going to make your enjoyment of the trip as much as it can be. So that comes down to, we've talked about being proficient with your weapon. We've talked about managing the expectations and really knowing what you're getting yourself into. But physical fitness, that is one that I'm not going to say everybody looks over. I, I definitely pack a couple extra pounds and I like to have a seconds sometimes at dinner, you know, when mom makes homemade bread, it's pretty hard to pass that up. But on the other side, uh, when the, when the other foot drops, you know, if you're going on a 50 mile doll sheep hunt like we did, and you're going to be progressive with your kit on your back every day, just sitting on the sofa and waiting till your sheep hunt appears and then flying up there and going off, oh, I can muster through. Not a good idea. Start incrementally increasing your regime of physical fitness to the point where you're, are you going on a South African safari where you're going to be hunting from blinds in a vehicle and not hiking very far? That's fine. That's great. I'm not throwing any stones and not, I'm not going to sit here and tell you guys that this hunt's better than that hunt. You should go on that one. I have the expectation. I want to go to every continent, hunt every species and see what it's all about. Now I can't do 10 a year. I can do one a year. I really have to plan, scrimp, and coordinate to where that one trip, that is the icing on the cake. That's the trip for the year. And every year I like to do something a little different. I like to go back and 
hunt the same 40 acre whitetail spot with my buddies, sure, or go back to the same duck blinds with my buddies. But I also like to look out on the horizon of let's go chase an exotic fish or an exotic animal, or let's go hunt in an exotic place. I know some guys that are doing turkeys. They want to kill a turkey in all 50 states. So it doesn't have to be Marco Polo in Turkmenistan for $120,000. It can be a DIY, I want to kill a turkey in every state. But having some preparation in that and putting some goals around that and then setting up some of these consistent things that I've seen across all my trips will make you more successful. One of it is gear. I'm continually refining my gear. But the gear that I take on a progressive doll sheep hunt versus the gear I'm taking on more of a static brown bear hunt versus the gear I'm taking on a whitetail hunt back east or say a high elevation mule deer hunt is way different than a low elevation mule deer hunt. But some of the gear is the same. Early season, late season, I'm wearing similar footwear. Sometimes I go from uninsulated to insulated boots. But I'm always going to take my gaiters, my raincoat. Backpacks change a little bit depending on demand and style. I'm actually really a fan of the modular backpacks like your Kafarus where you can, with the same frame, go from a 2,000 liter bag up to a 8,000 liter bag and you can add accessories. You can watch in the goat film, I've got the hoodlum bag on my Kafaru frame and it has got a full goat plus my hunting stuff in it. And oh, a four day backpack with some food, tent, stove, optics, my bow pushing over 40 pounds and then you stick a mountain goat in there that it was well over 100 for sure why just because i could barely stand up had to have help standing up and it was crushing when you get that kind of brutal weight if you haven't done some strength training i, I wouldn't sign up for that trip i wouldn't just dive headfirst into a trip like that start with something a little less intense and get some skills under your belt so equipment preparation Across the board, that's the fun part for me. I think that's the fun part for a lot of people is what am I going to take? What am I going to refine? And if you don't go out and test and use this equipment, if you haven't started a fire starter with your fire equipment or started a fire with your fire starting equipment, don't wait till it's blowing sideways snow and rain and you need a fire now to break out that piece of equipment and break it in and test it out. Maybe once during the summer when you're camping with the family, say, you know what, I'm going to test this out and make sure it actually does what I'm expecting it to do. The next piece is I love Onyx for the reason that I can download a pre-download a map and we're back to I like the unguided style hunting. Now you are dramatically limiting your success factor just because local knowledge is key. I've got several years habitual hunting in a couple drainages and I now know what saddles the elk are going to use when they're pressured from what direction. And that information, oh, they're out here feeding right now. Oh, the wind's wrong. We're just going to loop around and, and sit on this one. And they'll either be here tonight or tomorrow morning. We'll catch them right here and not bust them out of here. I'm not going to sit here and say that you shouldn't go guided or you should go guided. Cape Buffalo in South Africa, you have to have a pH. The laws of the country, the regulations state that you have to go guided with a licensed big game dangerous game ph and doll sheep in alaska is the same way if you're gonna go you have to go guide it but mule deer in the states is not that way you got to make those decisions on whether i'm going guided or unguided guided is going to cost you a lot of money it's also going to get you a foot in the door to see who what where when why how now as a former guide it's not very kosher to 
go with the guide, learn his area, and then next year buy the tag and show up and hike in there. That's just, that's not cool. He's put a lot of time, effort, energy. He's actually permitted to only be in one specific area. He can't just go over the next ridge and get away from you. With that said, I'm not saying you can or can't go back there and not hire the guide. I'm saying it's not very, it doesn't look very good on you if you hired the guide, say in 2023, and then in 2024, you decide, you know what, I'm not going to hire him, but I'm going to go back in that basin and hunt those deer we saw. Go find a different basin, go find some different deer. Might be in the same unit, but you don't got to park your truck next to his and walk back into where he's taking another guided client. I'm not saying that's impossible. You certainly can. I'm just saying it's, it's breaking some ethics there for sure. It's back to that old adage, if I take you to a fishing spot, and it's my secret spot, it's between us. If I'm there next weekend and you said, hey, I couldn't go fishing, and then all of a sudden you're out there with a buddy fishing my spot, that's not cool. As you're looking into these adventure style hunting, accommodations is a huge one. You can watch again on our doll sheep film. We started out in a tent, we stayed in a tent, and we ended in a tent. The goat hunt, we decided Kodiak was a little wetter, so we had a cabin and a tent. So we'd go out, everything would get soaking wet, come back to the cabin, dry out, go out for a couple days, everything gets soaking wet. In the meantime there, we did harvest a few critters. I was just up in Alaska moose hunting. We rented some cabins and did some more road coastal hunting than we did interior fly-in style hunts. And there's different requirements for each style hunt. And I'm not going to go through each hunt and what you should or shouldn't do. I'm just trying to give you a big overview of what you should be thinking about. So accommodations are one thing you need to figure out. Once you've got it booked, whether you're going to stay at a campsite, a cabin, a hotel, a lodge, a tent, you need to need to prepare and know where the food is, where the water is, right? That's being familiarized with the terrain and your equipment and kind of having a block schedule, so to speak, of we're showing up for 10 days, the plane brings us in day one, and then the plane's going to pick us up day 10. That lays out some groundwork for realistically, you need to be back wherever the plane's agreed to pick you up on day nine in the evening so that you're ready morning of day 10 to fly out of there. You don't want to be on a hillside eight miles away from where the plane's going to pick you up trying to pack meat and have an hour left and the pilot's not going to like you and you're going to be stressed. Part of all these things will do is they will help mitigate some of the stress. Now, it is stressful. The The biggest stress for me is airplanes, airports, and getting to the destination. Just getting to some of these places is two, three days of travel, whether you're by vehicle, by foot, or by plane. That said right there, plan a little bit of downtime in your trips. I'll throw my little brother under the bus. He drew a limited entry elk tag in, let's say 2009, might've been before 2009, but I can remember he worked a double shift back to back at his job and then had to drive 12 hours to meet at our hunting spot. He'd been up almost 30 some hours and he just didn't have the gas in the tank to maintain that. And it really started the whole trip off on the wrong foot. We'd only booked a five-day hunt. Anymore, I'm really getting to the point where I despise five-day hunts because day one, you arrive, you just start getting in the swing of thing. Day two, you pass something up. Day three and four go like they weren't even there. And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, tomorrow morning's last morning. I better hurry up. And it's over. I'd much prefer to book a seven, if not a nine-day trip. Why? Because if I need just a rest day, in a nine-day hunt, I'm basically getting two years worth of your guys' five-day trips. So I get it. That's now two weeks of vacation, and 
if you're if you got four weeks of vacation a year, it's pretty hard to get the missus to agree to I'm taking two of it for me. But that comes down to just managing the expectations and what you're going to do. However, with that nine day time frame built in there, when you show up day one, there's no rush to get in the woods. You can set up your accommodations, set up your equipment, maybe go out for a quick scout. And every time the terrain looks way different when you're actually standing there looking at it than when you've, because I spend hours Google earthing, Google mapsing, and then marking spots on Onyx that are potential pinch points, water crossings, just ambush points, places that I want to go see glassing knobs. To, to recap just a little bit, we've gone over license regulations. We've gone over the terrain. We've gone over accommodations, equipment preparation. We could talk for three days about it and still not cover all of it. Some of the basic things, are your laces and your boots good? Are the soles on your boots good? Did you waterproof your boots? Just going through and checking your gear, but making sure your gear is the right gear. And a lot of guides will send you with a gear list. One big thing that you don't want to do going to Kodiak, going to Africa, going out west or back east on any of these trips. You don't want to be overgeared, but you definitely don't want to be undergeared. And by that, I mean, if I was going to go on a whitetail trip back east, if the place I've agreed to go to already has stands, I'm not going to take four extra stands of myself. However, if I have permission to maybe put up some stands in a place that nobody's hunted, maybe on the edge of a bedding area, maybe in a new creek, throwing an, a climber or a saddle in so that you have that piece of equipment might be beneficial. However, if you're flying, checking luggage, you've got to prepare for what am I doing with protein on the way home? And that's something that local guides really help out with, right? Is knowing where cold storage is if you're going on an early archery hunt, which is what I like to do. Having access to some way to preserve that meat means that say say you and a buddy are going elk hunting or mule deer hunting out west if he's still got a tag to fill you can't just say all right put the put the meat in the cooler we're driving home again these are 101 basic when you hear them you're like oh that's a no-brainer but it's things you need to think about what are you doing with that protein how are you getting it home how are you keeping it cold i prefer a couple big coolers i like to find a local walk-in cooler of some kind take my meat and game bags in there, hang it for a few days, and then I can put it in big coolers and transport it home. So with that, once you, you're you're successful, you, you've got a game plan to get meat home, great. In the field, a game plan you need to have is self-recovery, safety, first aid. And I got left, you guys have heard the story, in Alaska by the float plane for a couple days when the communication was that he'd be back that night with the rest of my party. Didn't come back for a couple days. I didn't have the sat phone with me that was with the rest of the group. Anymore, I've got the uh, Garmin InReach Mini. It Bluetooths to my phone. I think it's 100 bucks a year for the membership to send 50 text messages a month. And I've got the SOS button. We're not sponsored by them. I'm not paid by them. I've just used it for a while. And it seems to be functioning for me very well. Definitely brush up on your bushcraft, your survival, your first aid, navigation, right? Can you navigate from point A to B? I suck with a map and compass. I know how to use them. I just really suck at trying to to hit a point on a map. I could do a lot more orienteering compass work and get better at that. However, I use the crux of open up Onyx, hit the direction arrow. They just rechanged it. Now you've got a distant scale. So I can do pretty decent just... If I've been down the trail once or twice and 
go in the dark back and forth. I'm not as good as maybe my horse might be, but I get to where there should be a, a fork coming up here in the next couple hundred yards. And oh, there it is. So that local knowledge, if you don't have it, if you're not going to hire a guide, it's very hard earned. It's not that I'm saying you shouldn't, but definitely talk to local biologists, talk to fishing game, talk to game wardens, talk to ranchers, talk to guides, talk to other hunters. Cause sometimes that road that you're planning on access in that spot is gated or washed out and it doesn't show that. So that knowledge is, will give you a leg up on being successful on top of other people. Another thing to really consider is I look at what is the average climate going to be? And in September in Wyoming, you're typically T-short and almost shorts every day. However, we've had lots of times where a storm rolls over the top mountain and drops six inches of snow. I like to be running around with a puffy jacket and pants and rain jacket and pant in my backpack. In South Africa, I'm not taking my puffy pants. I'm not even taking my rain jacket. I'll take a light, warm, insulated jacket because the mornings were cool enough that it was you'd want a jacket. But we're talking... 45 and then it warmed up to 70 where you're stripping that jacket and almost wanting to strip your long sleeve shirt off so understanding what what the climate should be what the patterns typically should be and being prepared for that with the appropriate clothing and then like I said always having a little bit of emergency backup whether that's not supposed to have any rain but I threw a rain poncho in a lightweight one those things will immensely improve your mood if you're hiking down the trail and it's pouring rain and you pull your rain jacket out, or if you at least have heavyweight base layers at camp where you're in a mid-October situation where weather swung from average of 60 today to average of 40 for the day. Having some extra clothing or having the appropriate clothing will prolong and extend your adventure stay hunt, right? Nobody wants to book one of these trips do all the preparation work. And when we talk about preparation work, if you've realized you're going to book it, if you're going with Outfitter, a lot of these guys, you're booking 12, 24, maybe even 36 months in advance. So you've got time to get the physical fitness done. You've got time to get the accuracy done. You're not stressed about trying to purchase the new equipment that the guide list said you need to take or say the difference from going from whitetail hunting in the east to elk hunting in the west is most of the time you need to accommodate your own lodging if you want to if you want to be close to the elk if you don't own a decent tent you know you're talking some investment in some equipment to get going if if you're going as a western hunter to the east and you're going to go whitetail hunting i didn't own any tree stands what do i need tree stands for there's there's not even big enough trees around here to get up in a tree stand okay i'm being facetious but honestly mule deer and elk i don't hunt water very much and even if I do hunt water, I'm just going to use the natural brush and brush blind in and sit there. So tree stands are a different game and I have, I'm not throwing stones. I actually enjoy killing whitetail out of tree stands. I just don't enjoy sitting for 12 hours. Blacktails are another one that if those aren't on your radar and you haven't hunted, they're very similar to whitetail except three times harder. And that's, that doesn't come from me. That comes from other people that hunted them. I've harvested Blacktail, harvested whitetail, harvested mule deer. By far, my favorite is mule deer to hunt, to eat. Whitetails are pretty dang good, but the elusive blacktail is delicious, is every bit as challenging as the other two, if not more. And uh, the terrain is vastly different. You're hunting Pacific Nest coastal rainforests, and those rainforests are dense, thick, wet, and it's a new game to. If you whitetail hunters really want to challenge, 
step up, go try and hunt a blacktail. They live in maybe even less acreage at times than whitetail, and they are significantly smaller and much more nocturnal, amazingly. And that's one thing you're going to look at is if you're going from the east to the west to go hunt blacktails, are you flying? Are you driving? If you're driving, you can take a base camp. It's definitely a hunt you could DIY. It's also a hunt that you could go guided. And neither would be the wrong answer. For sure, you could save a lot of travel time by booking a flight. So that comes down to an aspect of you got to transport this equipment, specifically your bow and rifle, invest in a good case. I don't care if it's Plano. I don't care if it's SKB. There's a bunch of brands out there. I enjoy the SKB case that I've bought. It's an extra large bow case. It's a little heavy. I typically have to pay for an overweight baggage fee for my bow case. It's similar to a skis, a big ski case, but it's big enough that I can throw my optics, my knives, all my camo in there. And typically I check my backpack and I walk on the plane, maybe a personal item, but most of my gear, including food for my goat hunt, I checked in three bags and away I went. And that's me housing the lodging. That's my recovery first aid gear. That's all of it. And the first thing to do when you get there is pull that weapon out of the case and take a couple test, test fire shots. Make sure everything's where you're at. You don't want to be, I cited this in last week and it was close. No, you want to be proficient that, hey, this weapon's been working for me for months you just want to make sure that check your zero real quick. So you go out in the field and you remove that, oh, is this still zeroed or did they bump it on the plane? That that fear will creep up in the back of your mind of, is my equipment suitable and did it travel well? And that is, again, the biggest frustration. I've been on three flight hunts in the last dozen months or so, and two out of the three, my bags didn't arrive on time. And that, that, that costs you a day sitting in an airport waiting for your bag to come. They're getting better for sure. The airlines, but still that can in South Africa, I'll never take a rifle. I only take a bow. I like to bow hunt. If you're not that big into bow hunting and you're going to South Africa, but you want to do the archery stuff, they have archery tackle there to rent. They have rifles there to rent. If you really have to take your grandfather's rifle and go to Africa and harvest animals with it, by all means, you can get the permits and do it. It's a pain in the butt. I just don't have grandfather's rifle that I need to go to Africa to use. So I take my bow. Typically, when I'm going with somebody, we take a double bow case, put both bows in the case, and knock on wood, it's uh, always made it there on time. This last time, my backpack with my rain gear and my food and my emergency stuff didn't make it, didn't make it with my sleeping bag. So I went to Walmart, bought a sleeping bag, had to hang out in the cabin for a day waiting for all my equipment to arrive. So we're getting down to one of the last couple things is, you know, some ethics and some conservation ideas. There are some different philosophies across the nation and country, and some people on some properties are very pro-predator harvest. Some are very anti-predator harvest. And knowing the local culture and customs is definitely a win. And you might really upset some villagers if you let a coyote live, you might really upset some villagers if you harvest a coyote. And knowing those idiosyncrasies of the culture of where you're going, it, it will help you just feel a little more attuned to situational awareness and where you're at and what you're doing. So that that comes right down to now that you know some of that, 
hunting strategy and tactics are going to play a huge role in the equipment you take. And on this out-of-state adventure stuff, you know, again, you can't just run home and swap out to different binos or swap out to a different weapon or swap out to a different boot. So having been prepared with that local knowledge with the average weather and taking adequate equipment will help you with your strategy. If you talk to either the locals and everybody says, we sit back, we glass the mountains, we find the critter, then we stock in, great. You're going to want to take some pretty big optics, tripods. And I will say anywhere I go anymore, I prefer to observe and then stock versus just cold stocking through the woods. And that's a little bit harder to do in Pennsylvania, right? It's not very easy to sit on a ridge somewhere in glass and find critters. I I understand that this isn't, take it for what it is, this isn't a one thing works for all situations, but having some of that hunting strategy and tactics, you need to know, okay, what are the wildlife supposed to be doing? What is the wildlife behavior at this point in time? Take grizzly bears on in Alaska. I was up there chasing them this spring And knowing that they were chasing sows and you just wanted to sit back and try and find a female bear and then there'd be several boar bears chasing that sow or in that drainage checking for a sow in heat. Now that gives you a leg up on, you know where the animals should be, you know what they should be doing. If they're not there and they're not doing that, now you can start wondering why and start looking in peripheral places. But definitely starting with a good hunting strategy and then adapt your approach based on new challenges. I like to start with observing long distance with high powered optics so that my scent and my presence isn't disturbing the animals and I can get, I can glean a little bit of insight into their daily life. And this is again, gonna be completely different species dependent, weather dependent. I might switch from a spot and stock to a ambush over or preferred space, whether that's food, water, or just travel corridors. And that's all situational dependent. So you're there, you've got your gear, you've got your license, you've got your tag, you know where you're sleeping, you've prepared for all this, take some photos, enjoy it, because just setting on the pressure of, I've got to shoot this many inch animal on this trip, or it's the end of it. Again, you're here for the adventure. You're not here to fill the freezers. And that's a little controversy. I understand that. Certainly the protein's going home with me. I'm going to enjoy the protein. But again, down to dollars and cents, it doesn't make sense for me to fly to halfway around the globe, harvest some protein, put it in a freezer and come home versus skipping out on the protein that I can procure here locally and put in my freezer. I'm not saying don't bring your protein home. Certainly bring the protein home, share it, enjoy it. That is the whole thing of why we're going. But if it's all about inches, it, it's, it diminishes the adventure. Enjoy the journey. Whether that's bumps in the road, whether you can't predict everything, your guide and outfitter can't predict everything. And so showing up with a little bit of open mind that I'm just here to enjoy the culture, the people, and hopefully get, I wish everybody gets to fill their tag. That's yeah, that's why you're going. And when it comes down to me, I'm not a big mountaineer. I really, if you said, hey, it's April, May, let's go climb this Vista Butte mountain. We'll take a picture up there and climb back down. Great. Sure. Fine. I'll go. Maybe. Possibly. However, if you tell me it's September, hey, let's go climb on that Vista before daylight. We'll set up we'll glass for a little bit. We'll take a quick selfie with the sunrise in the background. Then we're going to pack our equipment up and we're going to go chase whatever we see. 
I'm in. Game on. Let's go. And I don't care if that's plains, mountains, swamps, rainforest. I don't care. Let's go. Let's have fun. And I just want to go out and enjoy all of it. I went to Missouri, paid for ranch access. And one thing I really witnessed that I you don't witness as much in the woods, say here in Wyoming, is when you're setting up before daylight glassing in Wyoming, the sun comes up, you might spot an animal or two moving. When you're sitting in a tree stand in Missouri waiting for the sun to come up, it's dead quiet. And then all of a sudden a few birds start singing and then the squirrels start going through the woods. Man, those squirrels sound like a 300 pound boar just tearing something up. But I mean, a little wood pound squirrel gets your heart going all the time. But you just feel the whole forest come alive and you need to sit back and enjoy that a little bit. And I'm not saying remove the destination goal pressure of harvesting something. And sometimes you got to do something a little out of your comfort zone. Sometimes you might just say, you know what, we've been getting up at 630, driving to the blind at 645 and hiking in, setting up at seven, and then going back to the lodge at noon, having lunch and, and getting dropped off at a different stand at one. You know what, maybe the deer habituated to that routine. Maybe just take your lunch, pack it in, go in a little bit further, go to a stand that maybe isn't as productive in the mornings and evenings, but does have some deer traffic. And you might just catch a big buck cruise through at lunchtime while everybody else is back at the lodge having sandwiches. I can have a sandwich out of my backpack. And I've found that's true Western hunting with elk and deer. There's a lot, there's a drive to go back to comfort versus just bucking up and staying uncomfortable. Now you have to balance that with safety. If we're talking hypothermia and weather at some point in time, I can remember we had two guys in the, in grizzly bear country, deep in the wilderness with elk quarters on our back. And we were going down unfamiliar hillside to a very familiar trailer trail. So I knew exactly where we were headed, but we were about a mile or two up the ridge from where I'd ever been. And it was steep, nasty blowdown, and it was getting dangerous. It was after midnight. We all had elk on our backs. Three of us had a whole elk. So it was substantial weight. And once we got about 400 yards from the gut pile, one, one of the guys in the party said, this is nuts. I was prepared to take the meat to the bottom, but it was getting to where somebody was going to fall and twist a knee or run a stob from a blowdown into a, a body part. So we opted to hang the meat, lighten our loads. Then we could much more easily pick our way down through that blowdown to the main trail and hike out. Then we ran back in in the daylight and recovered the meat. But you have to go with the group flow and keep some safety in mind and just enjoy the experience. So again, guys, this has just been a tutorial on some out-of-state hunting, some things to think about. I hope that maybe this has got you to think about booking some sort of trip somewhere and definitely doing some research. Up your game on your on, on where you think you're weak, whether that's orienteering like me. We, we all could always do a little more gear practice and be a little more proficient with our weapon, but really analyzing the kit you're using and doing something out of your comfort zone. Maybe it's an out-of-state duck hunt. Maybe it's a helicopter hog hunt. Maybe it's an Alaskan doll sheep hunt or even an Asian water buffalo. Challenge yourself and see what you can go find. I really just really enjoy hiking new country, covering new terrain, stepping over a new ridge and looking at a new valley and just enjoying the creation that we've been given. Until next time, guys, definitely check out our sponsors. I plugged them in the beginning, but again, High Mountain Seasoning, Bow Spiders, and PK Lures. You can't go wrong with any of those three. Give them a try. Go check out the promo codes. And until next time.
enjoy the outdoors. Thanks again for listening to the Radcast Outdoors podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. If so, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe, share, and give us a five-star rating, which really helps other people find the show. You can find all of our shows, recipes, giveaways, videos, and much more at radcast.com. While you're there, please help support the show by purchasing a Radcast Outdoors shirt or hat. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a Radcast community on Facebook called Radcast Nation, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation there. And of course, please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors.